Literacy Institute podcast. I'm Susan Hauser, the ABI's resident scholar for the fall of 2012. Many industries, including the global automotive industry, rely on manufacturing supply chains that can be severely impacted by financial stress or financial failure of any member of the supply chain. With me to discuss these issues are Patrick Mears, a partner in the Grand Rapids, Michigan office of Barnes & Thornburg, LLP. Mr. Mears is chair of the firm's finance, insolvency, and restructuring department and co-chair of the firm's New York Law Practice Group. His practice focuses on insolvency, workouts, restructurings, commercial finance, securitization, and creditors' rights. Patrick is a fellow of the American College of Bankruptcy and a member of the American Law Institute. He's published widely and recognized worldwide as an expert in this area. Also with me is John Gregg, a partner also in the Grand Rapids, Michigan office of Barnes & Thornburg LLP. He has extensive experience in representing debtors, lenders, committees, trustees, asset purchasers, other parties in interest in some of the country's largest and most complex restructuring cases, including General Motors, Chrysler, Refco, Conseco, United Airlines, Delphi, and Plastec. And finally, their co-author Deborah Thorne, a partner in the Chicago office of Barnes & Thornburg, is also with us. Deborah represents lenders, debtors, committees, trustees, asset purchasers, lessors, and other parties' interests in some of the country's largest and also most complex restructuring cases, including United Airlines, Kmart, Delphi, Meridian, and Plastec. Deborah has served as a member of or currently serves as a member of the ABI's Board of Directors and is a former co-chair of the ABI's Unsecured Trade Creditors Committee. Deborah and John are also widely published in this area, and all three of the authors are experts uh, on supply chain bankruptcies. Patrick, John, and Deborah are three of the co-authors of the ABI's newest publication, Interrupted, Understanding Bankruptcy's Effects on Manufacturing Supply Chains. Today we're going to be talking about some of the unique issues addressed in their book. So welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Actually, I'd like to start by talking about uh, the book itself. The book that's just come out is actually the second edition of the book. Can you tell me why you wrote the first edition or describe some of the reasons that led you to write the first edition of the book in 2006? Professor Hauser, it's uh, John Gregg. I'll, I'll respond to that question. Around 2004 and 2005, we began to see an emerging trend in the automotive industry that, um, in our opinion, would uh, lead to a greater number of insolvencies in the future. And little did we know that the um, economic catastrophe that would affect that industry would be so uh, prevalent and widespread, not only through uh, really the state of Michigan, but also uh, the Midwest as a whole. Uh, and so after we identified um, you know, this emerging trend, we, we thought it would be helpful um, not only to other practitioners, but also uh, to our clients and, um, I guess, uh, potential clients to um, really put together the, the first edition of the book. And um, the ABI was gracious enough to uh, publish that for us. Can you tell me or tell us how you used the earlier edition of the book and uh, have known other practitioners to use it? This is Debbie Thorne. Um, I think a lot of people used it because it really wraps up in a 
concise way all of the remedies that are available under Article 2 of the Uniform Commercial Code, both from the buyer's and the seller's perspective. And then because of the in-depth um, experience that um, either the lawyers on this call or other people in our firm had within the automotive industry, we're able to really discuss the application of that to um, the auto supply um, uh, supply chain, um, especially in some of the things that are, were harder to find um, information on, on accommodation agreements and other uh, negotiating tools that are used specifically in the automotive industry. Yeah, I, I was uh, struck by the comprehensive nature of your book, actually, and it does, in fact, wrap up all of the Article II remedies dealing with both buyers and sellers. What does the second edition add? Because the second edition, I think, is even more comprehensive, much more comprehensive than the first. Well, this is Pat Mears. Um, one thing that it does add is it uh, brings in, uh, we were able to uh, uh, recruit some authors in other countries, namely Canada, Germany, and Mexico, to talk about supply chain issues in their countries and how they handle it. And that, I think, is in recognition of um, the mere fact of globalization, particularly in, in, auto, in the auto industry and in other industries that, that, are, that are sensitive to supply chain issues. I think so the other thing, go ahead, other thing that it does is that, you know, the supply chain, I think as you indicated earlier on in the call, um, isn't limited just to automotive. It, there's wide implications for the same principles, be it um, food processor, manufacturer of chewing gum, um, you know, so many manufacturer of airplanes. Uh, all of these, you know, very seldom anymore does any company manufacture all the parts that it then integrates into a final product. Almost every type of manufacturing business in the country or really in the world probably today um, relies on the supply chain, which has all of these, you know, really similar issues that we found so prevalent in the auto supply industry. So from a legal standpoint, is it fair to view a manufacturing supply chain as a chain of interlocking contracts that connect various suppliers? Yeah, this is Pat Mears. I don't think it'd be, they'd be interlocking necessarily. Mm -hmm. I, I think they affect one another in the sense that if there's a breakdown in the contractual relationship between a critical supplier to one, to another to a customer along the supply chain, that's going to have implications not only up the chain but down the chain. Um, I guess they are sensitive to one another, but not necessarily interlocking. There's no privity really beyond the. Um, there's generally no privity beyond the the two parties to the contract for the. The, the one particular step that you're discussing. Mm -hmm. So in a legal sense, they're not interlocking, but in, in a business sense, they might be, so, so that they affect one another, different entities within the chain. In, in addition to the auto industry, what are some of the other industries in the United States that employ manufacturing supply chains where you see problems occur? Well, I've been, uh, I've represented uh, clients who are in manufacturers of confections and chewing gum, and they have similar issues that their suppliers, they may have a supplier who is the only supplier of a certain ingredient, um, and obviously keeping that supply chain 
going is crucial to their being able to manufacture. So I certainly have seen it there. I've seen it, um, you know, in other, I mean, so that's in the food industry. Um, I also see it uh, even in, in other more broad agricultural businesses where there are concerns about contracts. Mm -hmm. So, so the concepts in your book can apply to any type of manufacturing enterprise in which uh, materials or supplies are sourced. Correct. Yeah. Another observation about your book, your book is very comprehensive in terms of the phases of financial distress that you address. So your coverage goes far beyond bankruptcy um, and begins with looking at warning signs of financial distress. At what point should counsel become involved in the process ideally? Well, typically, I guess, I guess the general rule is the earlier the better. Oftentimes, though, uh, in uh, counsel is sometimes brought in later, like let's take the auto industry, for example. Uh, these, these issues generally arise when a sole source supplier uh, to a customer uh, approaches the customer and says, you know what, I, I just can't make, it, I can't make the economics work anymore, and so therefore I need a price hike or price support or wh however, however they want to phrase it. And then uh, typically the customer um, would hire a, a consultant, a, 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 an expert automotive consultant, to go into the factory and to determine what the source of the problem is. Uh, it may be something that's easily fixable or not. And then the co consultant will report back to the customer, okay, this is how we see it. You know, the price, the price increase is, uh, request is justified or not justified. And usually when the price increase request is not justified, um, I think there you tend to see the lawyers get hired. Um, and maybe that's the appropriate time for the lawyers to come in once the business problems are analyzed. Mm -hmm. I often use this book and, and the concepts in it to work with vendors who may be selling to troubled buyers. So they're, you know, I think they can handle sending a letter asking for adequate assurance. But they have to, I certainly think at the time that they start to contemplate um, repudiating the contract that they definitely need to talk to a lawyer because they're likely to be brought into court. Mm -hmm. um, so I think some things clients can certainly learn to do. They're more routine. You know, it's an invitation to come and discuss uh, the fact that payment hasn't been received, but if they're going to cut off the supply chain, they need to be very wary. Hmm. Yeah, your, your book is also very comprehensive in addressing the problem from multiple points of view. So... And, and in a very strategic way. So you have sections in which you discuss strategies for vendors, strategies for customers, strategies for suppliers. Is there a point of view that in your practice you have, have emphasized or have you represented clients from all points of view? I think it's fair to say that we've represented clients from all points of view, whether it be customers, suppliers, uh, or the lenders. Mm -hmm. um, in these situations, and we've tried to um, accumulate that knowledge and, and put put it down on paper in the book, so that um, we're giving an objective viewpoint of all of the issues that may arise, and, and sharing our perspective in that way. 
Yeah, that confirms how the book reads, actually. It, it doesn't have a single point of view, and it seems very objective from, uh, from all sides of the problem. Some of the industry-specific concepts that are addressed in your book or specific to supply chain issues involve problems with single-source suppliers, which you've already addressed, um, and the practice uh, of certain industries of using just-in-time inventory. Can you describe just-in-time inventory and talk about which types of industries use that inventory method? Well, the, uh, the, the, typical, the, the best example is the auto industry because that seems to be where this all arose. Uh, Just-in-time inventory is, is really something that's arisen probably within the last 20 or 30 years. Year, years ago, back in the 50s and 60s, um, and even before then, um, the, the, auto, the auto assemblers would create very huge inventory banks of parts to include in the in the in the auto, so they always had enough on hand. Really, no matter what would happen to one or more suppliers down the chain, that changed um, in the I would say probably in the 70s and the 80s. And there, the um, in that situation, because of financing restrictions and a whole host of other reasons, the um, the suppliers. Uh, weren't really the suppliers and the customers didn't really want to create these large banks because it was a significant capital outflow to to maintain, and so the the customer said, okay, um, supplier X, I want you to keep uh, on hand just enough to to keep me keep the production line running, and you know if you go down to one part, that's fine so long as uh, once you once you use up that one part. Um, you're going to have a shipment immediately to uh, to replenish the inventory. So that, that's kind of the basic concept. Mm-hmm. It's, it's to reduce costs of the customer and also the supplier. Mm-hmm. So it's an inventory strategy that works well if everybody's in good financial shape. But if a supplier of that inventory is in financial trouble, could cause problems for uh, parties down the chain. And and certainly can cause problems if the buyer has problems. I've had clients who face that as well, which is why terms and conditions are really important because otherwise the supplier could very easily be stuck with this inventory it has to have ready to ship, which it then can't get paid for, or there's a termination clause that, you know, basically cuts them off um, while they're and they're stuck with with supplies, for example, paint, which is specific to a certain type of automobile or other uh, product. So, so what types of strategies would you advise be used for parties who are facing trouble related to just-in-time inventory? Well, one, one strategy is one that Debbie mentioned is the um, adequate assurance request mm-hmm. under 2609 of the UCC if, um, if a seller or a buyer senses that there is going to be uh, problems in uh, obtaining supply or, or, or selling uh, selling goods, um, then they can ask for adequate assurance of future performance of the other party uh, to the contract. And uh, that, uh, and particularly in, and it's very important for, let's say, the auto industry, which, uh, you know, if you have a line shutdown, 
that is going to result in tremendous um, consequential damages being suffered by the parties up, uh, up the chain, particularly with the OEMs, the, the Fords and the Chryslers and the General Motors. So um, doing, a, doing a request for adequate assurance sent out under 2609 of the UCC really forces the supplier, or I, I'm sorry, forces the other threatened party to the contract um, to, to say, okay, your, uh, uh, we recognize your problem and here's what we intend to do and this is our adequate assurance proposal. Um, and if that's not forthcoming within you know, an appropriate time, a reasonable time, then the, um, the other party to the contract has the right to repudiate uh, that contract, treat it as an anticipatory repudiation by the other party to the contract that's received the adequate assurance request that hasn't been appropriately responded to. UCC provides in uh, sections 2702, which allows the seller of goods to um, refuse to deliver unless uh, COD or cash in advance is provided, but only where the buyer is discovered to be insolvent. And so on its face, this provides a, a useful tool to the seller, so long as in the uh, event of a court battle, he can actually prove that the buyer is in fact insolvent. Um, if he cannot do so and uh, repudiates on his own, he perhaps faces some damages coming back at him. But um, clearly where the um, buyer is under in, in financial distress, this is a nice tool to change the terms of a contract. So, so pre-bankruptcy, the UCC offers a lot of tools to deal with issues like this. What's different about these cases in bankruptcy? What, what happens when bankruptcy begins to impact the supply chain? Well, first of all, the UCC does not disappear in bankruptcy, but it does, as you indicated, it does have some other bells and whistles that you have to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. um, I, the stoppage of delivery or stoppage in transit is a remedy that does carry over and is often very effective to use um, when somebody files bankruptcy, you can be pretty sure that they're, you can make a reasonable assumption they're insolvent enough to exercise that remedy. Um, we certainly did that um, for one of our clients in the, I can't remember if it was GM or Chrysler, but we stopped the trucks um, and made sure that we were going to be paid, and we did have a very crucial uh, part, tires, which needed to go on the automobiles coming off of the line, and we were paid for those, and we did that. Uh, the day the bankruptcies were filed, um, and that was very effective. Um, beyond that, um, asking for adequate uh, protection um, would require uh, a motion um, and bringing that before the court, um, but I think that that still can be very effective um, if it, you have um, the sense that there will not be payment forthcoming uh, even for post-petition deliveries. Um, I think that in the Visteon case, we give the example in the book mm -hmm. of Panasonic uh, Automotive that filed a very effective motion in that case um, saying, you know, the debtor say, states in its first day pleadings that um, it's insolvent, it only has use of cash collateral, there's no debtor in possession financing at that point in the case, and we have 55-day terms, and we don't know if we're going to be able to be paid at the end of the 55 days. We don't know what's going to happen with this debtor. And really put together the case as to why they needed adequate protection uh, in the bankruptcy setting. But they did it in the form of a motion. I think 
think uh, stopping goods in transit post-petition um, is somewhat of a dangerous proposition, though, where you are seeking payment on pre-petition indebtedness. In the event that you, you do stop goods in transit and uh, refuse to continue to supply unless you are paid for pre-petition goods already sold to the debtor, you're likely to face a motion to compel and uh, also be confronted with um, accusations that you violated the automatic stay. Because I, need I would certainly agree with you, but I would certainly stop goods that are at least about to be delivered post-petition. No, I, I absolutely agree with that, Debbie. Uh, just saying that you cannot use it as a tool to extort payments right. on uh, pre-petition indebtedness. I absolutely agree. So are there special issues as well dealing with critical vendor payments that come up in supply chains or with supply chain cases? Certainly. You have to look at the uh, proposed um, procedures and the proposed trade agreement that's going to be a requirement generally um, if you are to be treated as a critical vendor to make sure that you really want to live with those terms. Uh, you're often, I mean, and they vary, um, you may be signing something that you really don't want to sign. So I think that vendors who may be critical need to be very careful, and, and they may have more leverage than they think, mm -hmm. um, but often the, the orders that are suggested are, and the trade agreements are very onerous. One of the parts of your book dealing with bankruptcy that I thought was very interesting was the section dealing with asset sales, and uh, particularly asset sales in Chrysler and GM in, in those cases. How would suppliers and customers be impacted, this is a very general question, uh, be impacted in a Chapter 11 case that contemplates an asset sale as opposed to a real organization? Well, if, if there is an executory contract in effect between the, the debtor and the supplier, um, you're, going to, you're going to be particularly interested in uh, who the purchaser, who the proposed purchaser of the assets is, and you're going to want to make sure that um, that there's adequate assurance of future performance by the assignee, um, because if it's going to be assigned, the proposed, the contract's going to be assigned to an assignee that really is is not a is not as good economic entity as the Chapter 11 debtor was at the time of the contract, I think the, the supplier whose contract is threatened to be assigned might want to object to the assignment. Um, however, on the other hand, there may be, you know, you may want to have that happen uh, because of the strength of the asset purchaser. Um, there will always be, or there will often be a question of the, the amount of the cure in order to assign an executory contract, to assume and assign it, the, the, the arrearages existing under the contract or the existing defaults under the contract have to be cured. And um, if they're not going to be cured, in other words, if there's a cure amount that's indicated that's substantially less than what the supplier thinks it is, then the supplier may very well object to the assignment because the prerequisites to assignment are present, i.e., proper cure. And one of the really practical problems is that the contracts to be assigned are often not identified until, you know, the 11th hour or later. So it's very difficult to, A, know whether you're going to be assigned or not, and 
B, more importantly, what is that cure? Because I've seen many cases where the cure is so far off from what is accurate, and maybe they've even put down zero, uh, so you're really left um, in a very bad way. So I think you, it's very, you have to be really on top of it to make sure you get adequate information to even make a decision. One other thing that's really striking about your book um, is the emphasis on cross-border practice and cross-border insolvency. And I'd like to talk about that a little bit um, because it's something that's uh, really been expanded in this edition of the book. Can you describe again why you chose to expand the book and take it in that direction? Are you responding to economic events globally or to things that you're seeing in your cases? Well, I, th I think the answer to that is yes on both counts. Very, if you, uh, let's say, with, let's take Delphi, for example. You know, Delphi, um, Delphi's uh, stretch or its, its empire is, you know, uh, extended to a number of different countries. Um, not all of the Delphi uh, entities filed Chapter 11. I think all of the ones that did, I believe, filed in the United States. That's not always the case. Um, sometimes you have a, say, a Chapter 11 filing in the U.S. of the parent, and then a, the German subsidiary will file in Germany for reorganization. Um, so it's, and, and even before that, and talk about the other part of the book, the, the workout part of the book, you may have a workout in, in the United States that goes along kind of a, expected lines like we discussed, but in Germany there's going to be a whole different uh, set of customs and procedures in the workout that you may have to follow. And of course for that you'll need foreign counsel. Um, so it, it, it seems to me that, or at least it's been our experience that, you know, back in the 70s and early 80s when I was just getting started in practice, um, you know, our, our problems were almost always in the United States and typically in one particular state. Now, however, we're, we're faced with not only issues of, uh, of American bankruptcy law, but also bankruptcy law in, in other countries. So it's, I, I, think it's, I think what we've added to the book reflects reality, particularly in the large, larger Chapter 11 case. And what you've added are chapters dealing specifically with uh, insolvency laws in Canada, Germany, and Mexico, um, and also a section dealing with cross-border insolvencies in Chapter 15. Um, so a nice little toolkit there for lawyers who need to work uh, with these issues um, is available to them. Um, Relative to cross-border insolvencies, how has Chapter 15 worked in your cases? Has it been effective? Um, I, think it's, I think it's done precisely what it's designed to do, which is to, you know, there are a number of things that it does, but uh, one, one important avenue would be to enable a, a, a bankruptcy administrator from another country to be able to come into the United States and either have the, um, the bankruptcy in the country that he's from, he or she is from, uh, to be recognized either as a foreign main proceeding or as a secondary proceeding so that the assets in the U.S. can be, um, can be liquidated or, 
or sold in, to, on a going concern basis. Um, I think it's uh, under the, under the uh, prior version of the bankruptcy code before the 2005 amendments, it was, um, practice was, uh, the practice under old section 304 was, was spotty. A number of courts uh, would come down with decisions saying, well, you know, we're not going to recognize this uh, administrator's request for, you know, some sort of uh, vague uh, public policy decision, uh, reason. Now, at my reading of the, of, of Chapter 15 is those exceptions have been uh, substantially narrowed, and this facilitates the type of international liquidation efforts that are really needed now. So we're almost out of time, actually. And before I conclude, I'd like to ask if there's anything else about your book that you'd like to stress or tell tell the audience. Just just one short comment. It's it's interesting to note that uh, the accommodation agreement. And the access agreements, uh, those uh, examples of those are, are attached to the in, to book in the book as appendices. Uh, those really started, and that whole practice kind of developed in the 1970s. And now, in most uh, American auto workouts, and even in the bankruptcy cases, you see those forms used. They're almost always entitled accommodation agreements and access and security agreements. The, the particular provisions may change, but the the topics, the important topics, are, are constant. Particularly uh, building up an inventory bank, um, uh, limiting the right of offsets, and also uh, having the bank, the lending bank, agree to forbear, provided that um, you know that a number of conditions are met. So if if you were to getting involved in a workout, in, in, in an auto workout, um, and you don't have a lot of experience, at least our book gives you a nice introduction to it and gives you forms that, you know, that you can conceivably work with. It's true. The book has, as appendices, a fabulous set of forms, including those two agreements that, that you just mentioned. And I think one last thing I'd, I'd like to ask is, who do you see as the target audience for your book? Like, who would be your intended readers? Well, I think there's certainly other lawyers, um, but I, I think it's also a very helpful book for any general counsel uh, who is dealing with a supply chain issue, and in fact, CFOs who have supply chain issues who want to get a thumbnail sketch of what might happen, because having that knowledge just makes you a stronger negotiator. Um, the one thing about supply chain is that, you know, once it's broken, as Pat indicated, the consequential damages that can be enormous. So there is a, there's something sort of attractive about the fact that people try to protect their own interests but also try to come up with some workable uh, outcome uh, so that the supply chain continues on. I think any party, be they a lawyer or financial person who wants to understand the supply chain, understand what the legal ramifications are and their legal remedies are, um, the book's pretty helpful for them. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, actually. I, I thought the book was very detailed, very useful, and that one reason I asked the question was in reading it, I could see that it would be useful for attorneys, but also useful for people within the business who were making financial decisions. So I would agree with that. I, I 
really appreciate your time, Patrick, John, and Deborah, and um, want to thank you for uh, writing the book, publishing it with the ABI, and also sharing your insights with our listeners. And I'd also like to thank our audience for joining us for this podcast and encourage our listeners to discover the impact of bankruptcy on manufacturing supply chains uh, by purchasing their book at the ABI's online bookstore. For the American Bankruptcy Institute, this is Susan Hauser. Thank you for listening to us.